Good afternoon. It is Friday, July 22nd. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And today we are going to be talking with Ainsley Waldron. Ainsley, welcome. Oh, thank you. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, and then we will dive in and talk about your book, The Ultimate Secret for Business. Okay, thanks, Chickie. Um, well, as you can probably hear from my accent, I'm not a, I'm not an American. <laughs> I'm actually in North America at the moment, actually in Canada, and I'm not in the area where the heat wave is. I'm quite far north. I've been up in the ice fields, so I'm having rather a lovely time at the moment. Oh, nice. um, originally, I'm from Scotland. That's where I was uh, born and raised and educated. Um, I, however, nowadays I am actually based in Australia, in Brisbane, Australia. However, I do a lot of travelling and a lot of work, particularly in North America. Um, a bit about myself. I uh, started um, as an advisor in further education and technical education and training in Scotland. And um, at the age of uh, about 29, I was asked to go and work overseas by the British government. So I then spent the next six years working in different Pacific islands. Mostly I was based on uh, Solomon Islands and Guadalcanal, but I did a lot of work in various uh, Pacific islands, specifically for the British government, but also working for various aid agencies and various governments through them. Um, my background in further education and training was very useful in that I managed to uh, teach management and supervisory studies across a range of disciplines, and that gave me a real insight into business in a whole range of areas, different areas and different sorts of problems. Um, after working to, uh, for the British government in various Pacific islands, I then moved to Australia in 1992. And uh, from there I worked for various agencies, from like the United Nations large ones, uh, various government agencies and various small enterprises, um, all sorts of different organizations and enterprises. Um, I have managed people, I've managed like companies with over uh, 2,000 employees, myself, been responsible for budgets over 100 million and capital works of well over 100 million. Um, and I also set up my own company in 1995 where I was doing consultancy work. Um, first of all, I started doing consultancy work mostly for aid agencies and large government organizations. However, I was then asked more and more frequently to help out small businesses. And over the last few years, I've actually spent more time working with smaller enterprises and small business than I have with the larger organizations, although I'm still contracted to some of those large organizations. So oh, that's a bit about my background. I have four children. Um, the youngest are twins, age 21. And I have my first daughter is about to get married next month, so I'll certainly be in Australia next month for that. Um, hobbies, lots of them. Uh, one of my favourite hobbies is geocaching. I don't know if any of you are aware of that. Um, it's a sort of strange hobby. One I like doing because I can do it on my own a lot. It involves walking, it involves problem solving, I can do it anywhere in the world and I just love doing it. It's a kind of treasure hunting thing. And I nearly bumped into a grizzly bear here last night while doing it. So it can also be rather dangerous. 
However, I did uh, manage to avoid that. Um, I'm also a Mensa leader. Um, I I um, run the Mensa organisation in Brisbane, well, in all of Queensland State, actually, in Australia, uh, in between doing everything else. So I also have a high IQ and enjoy the socialisation of Mensa-type people. So that's a wee bit about myself. <laughs> it's hard to give a, a, an introduction in so, a, such a short time, but I'm happy to tell you a bit more if you want to hear any more. <laughs> No, that is a great background, and uh, I, I think what I'd like to do is just jump right in to your your book. And is this your first book, Ainsley? This is the first book that's entirely mine. I have uh, contributed to a number of academic, um, you know, works and a number of right. other books. This is the first book that's entirely mine. I also may add, my publishers wouldn't allow me any academia within this book whatsoever. I mean, I have various degrees, including an MBA, and I do at times want to give people a bit of the, the background as to why these things are happening uh, in a technical sense as well as in a practical sense, but this book is purely practical. Anything I wrote that was at all technical was taken out, and I think it's all the better for that because it really is a very easy and practical read. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet, but I did read the, the chapter that you have on your website that you can download, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. In fact, I already posted some uh, bits and pieces of it to Facebook to uh, get folks interested in the book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you wrote it for, what what were the catalysts for, for uh, writing a book? Uh, Deb, uh, that is on the, the phone today, we were talking earlier about how you know uh, we've both written books, and uh, you know anyone who thinks that you write them for fame and fortune <laughs> very very quickly finds out that if you divide the uh, amount of time that you put into it by what you get out of it, uh, you could pretty much work at McDonald's and and do better. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's quite true. Um, no, I mean, people kept asking me to, to write a book, quite honestly, um, because a lot of the solutions I give in business are really quite simple. But they're, they're not complex at all. But they're, they're not necessarily easy to apply because you have to think your way through and actually do something. But they are relatively simple. And people kept saying, oh, this is amazing. It's so simple. Why don't you write about it? And then a few years ago, I was actually speaking at a conference and uh, doing some work with some people. And um, a lady came up to me and said, look, we, we, uh, we know a publishing house that would be very, very pleased to uh, help you write a book. Um, so that's really why, why I ended up doing it, because uh, so many people asked me because of my experience. I mean, I've... I've put in at least the 10,000 hours that are obliged to put in to be good at anything, and I probably at least another 10,000 uh, and working on business success. So it was it was very easy for me to put it into a book, and it now is very easy for me to say to people, yeah, have a read of this book uh, before before I come on board. Uh, I do a lot of consultancy work, and my idea of consultancy work is that I do the work and I disappear. I don't want to be called back. It's not right, something right. I want to do. I want them. I want to leave them. And basically, one of the things that I want to leave them with is, is to be their own outside eye, because that's one of the great things you have when you go in as a consultant to a business, any business, any size of business. You're an outside eye looking in, and when you're an outside eye looking in, you can immediately see things that people right. that are entrenched in that business can't see. And one of the things I try and do in the book is give people, empower them with that ability 
to be their own outside eye, to look at things, to take that step back and look at things from an objective uh, point of view. You know, it's like Rabbi Burns, of course, with me coming from Scotland. I hope you can all understand me, but oh, <laughs> I yeah. tend to rabbit no, no, on in my funny accent. Uh, Rabbi Burns is my favourite poet. Um, you know, he wrote such great things as My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. But it was him that said uh, a line that's often quoted, All wadsome power, the gift to gi us, to see ourselves as others see us. In other words, to be able to see ourselves how other people see us. And I think if there's one thing that I could give people, it's that ability to be their own outside eye and look at their own business very objectively. Well, that that is really, really valuable advice. And, you know, the thing I love about your writing style, Ainsley, is, is it really is incredibly intensely practical. So what I'd like to do for our listeners is just – uh, step through a little bit of uh, what you have incorporated into the book. And, and I love how you start out that no matter how good your business is, it can always be better. And and so you, you really break the book in, into multiple parts, which starts with identifying basically the blockages that are keeping you from profitability and, and just your business goals. So can you talk to us a little bit about those uh, five common blockages and how to eliminate them? Yeah, yeah. I have the book in, in five major parts. I start with blockages and then symptoms, then healing the business, then lessons from the past, and then how to go forward now with the information in the book. And, and the first bit is all mostly about blockages and um, they're, they're not rocket science. Well, one of the first things I say to people is, and I say this in all sorts of businesses and to CEOs of big companies too, I say, well, what is it that irritates you most about your company? What is it that you sometimes wake up in the middle of the night worrying about or perhaps think about first thing in the morning? And it can be something very trivial or it can be something quite big. But the thing is, what is it that irritates you most? Well, whatever it is, let's just blooming well fix it. Get it fixed. I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but a lot of the things I deal with are simple. If it's irritating you daily, then it needs to be fixed. It could be, for example, it could be that receptionist that you know is ever so nice to you, but you've heard her with your door open occasionally, and she's not always quite so nice to all your customers. Well, you need to tackle that. And quite often the things that irritate us most are the things that we know that we have to do. We know that we aren't doing them and we should be doing them. So perhaps it's that receptionist. Now, that receptionist needs to know that her behavior is not acceptable and she needs to be given the chance to improve her behavior. And then if she doesn't do so well, then she needs to be have, <laughs> she needs to go, really. I'm also quite tough in my business. I do think that um, in order... In order to be fair to all employees, sometimes it means that we have to be tough with some of them. Um, another thing that might irritate us is, um, or not so much irritate, but another blockage that I find very common in businesses is uh, that businesses are actually, particularly small businesses, being held hostage. Now, I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but it's so true. So often an employee or a supplier or sometimes... Um, other people, they, they, can, they can be holding you hostage. For example, I mean, I was in a business not that long ago where a key employee was holding them hostage. 
he was the, the tech guy. He was the right. IT guru. And he, he was typical of many of the IT gurus, but, but unlike some of them. I mean, IT nowadays is such a crucial part of all businesses, and particularly small businesses. And IT must work integrally and very closely with the business. But this guy was of the old-fashioned IT type who spoke in gobbledygook a lot of the time. And I find that anyone that speaks in any kind of language that I can understand is usually speaking that way, either one, to show off, and, well, why do you need to show off? Or two, because they don't really know what they're doing and they want to bamboozle you with their talk. So this guy had everyone convinced in this firm that he was super clever and that the firm really needed him. But the more we looked at his performance, the more that we could see that a lot of the delays in that business and a lot of the problems lay with his IT guruism. So that guy actually had to either change or walk. And in that particular case, he actually walked. It sounds as though I'm t- saying that people should walk all the time. That's not the fact. Usually I find alternative solutions. But as I said before, in order to be fair to all employees, you really have to make sure that you're being fair to all. And sometimes that, that means some very difficult discussions and difficult decisions. Right, right. Uh, another and I, uh, actually, blockage I've seen often in companies is um, uh, a lack of uh, commitment to, to learning and, and to training. And I think it's really important, particularly with the rate of change in so many of the industries these days, that we do spend a lot of time, both as individuals and with all of our staff, ensuring that they are up to date with what they do. Now, that will make that has all sorts of benefits. Uh, not only is your company up to date, but usually your staff are feeling a bit better about themselves too. And, you know, encouraging them to learn is, is a great thing. Um, I'm sure that uh, one of the, the people, um, who was it, Linda from Dallas, uh, she's in that, that business of uh, older women returning to school, and I'm sure she'll be aware of all the opportunities there are and also the benefits of learning and training. Right, right. And, you know, I find uh, my industry happens to be the travel industry, and we, we talked about this on last week's call. One of one of the other blockages and the one that reson- resonated the most with me is no open channel to innovation or new markets. Right. And, you know, my industry is... is so insular in the way it looks at itself and and even even in thinking about marketing products and services um one of the statistics that um you know i i have been wrestling with is that 15 percent of all travel in the u.s is is actually by air and 85 percent is by car yet all of the marketing is done to the air traveler and and Mm so i've been uh, you know, just kind of hitting my head against the wall in the industry of trying to get the industry as a whole, uh, you know, to open their minds to innovation and, and to new markets. And yet, you know, they think they're being incredibly innovative by coming out with new mobile products, et cetera, but they still keep marketing to that same, you know, 15 people in the room when there are 100 people in the room. So right. and tell that, us and a little bit about that. They're losing opportunities at the same time, aren't they? Yes, Definitely. <laughs> Opportunities are lost, and and also it is changing with the times. I mean, for example, um, in Australia at the moment, they're just in the process of of introducing a new and quite drastic carbon tax, uh, and uh, 
<laughs> a lot of opposition to it, obviously, from particularly from, from industry. But um, that tax alone, if people don't get in and find out exactly what that's going to mean, then they're going to be behind. Because with the introduction of anything new, we really have to make sure that we're in there and we know what it's about and how that can actually change the face of our business. And some businesses that will change the face of particularly some of the businesses that are, you know, emitting a lot of emissions at the moment, they're going to be very highly taxed and have a whole lot of new fees. The whole, the whole country is actually going to change in many ways, but it's, it's really important in business that we stay absolutely abreast of what's happening in a country at any given time. Right, right. Yeah, I can see your... Um, your your air travel um, example is very similar to one that I give. I um, every so often I talk to our Institute of Company Directors about the obligations of company directors, and and they usually I do two days of of their course. Uh, one is on uh, strategy, and one is on risk management. And uh, when we talk about both of those areas, I talk about things very similar to what you say there, and the air travel, and and the differences, <laughs> and the right. new things coming up in that. Uh, I should fun. probably just uh, go on. Uh, part two of the book uh, is about uh, spotting uh, symptoms, and and one of the things I talk about a lot there is. Uh, Things like uh, self-sabotage, I find particularly, well, particularly in small business, but also in larger businesses when dealing with senior executives, I find that people can sabotage themselves. And I also, funnily enough, find this more often with women than with men. And I, I, I'm not quite sure why, but uh, perhaps it's because uh, of the way, I don't know, their, their background or the way they've been brought up or something. But quite often we limit ourselves by assuming that we have limitations that we don't have. Um, and it, it's quite true, you know, the old thing is if, if you think you'll end up with a house of a certain size and a car of a certain size and an income of a certain size, funnily enough, that's what you end up with. And I find a lot of people self-sabotage themselves because they don't think any bigger or any wider than what they were thinking all along. They don't review constantly. They don't believe in themselves. And I find a lot of people also in small business, um, I think the answer to helping you believe in yourself is to surround yourself with people uh, that do believe in you and your ideas and for you to instill in your staff your ideas and your beliefs so that they also have that belief. And it's, it's, um, it's a strange thing, it's a strange phenomenon, but I've seen it time and time again. If people believe they're going to succeed, they do succeed. And if they're going to believe they're going to succeed to a certain level, then they do as well. Another thing I say is, like, be a good listener. Listen, listen, listen. All the best business people I've ever met are great listeners. It doesn't mean that they do what people tell them. It means that they're great listeners, and then they make decisions based on that listening. I've found that most of the, the businessmen that I revere and the businesswomen that I revere most highly are, are people who don't feel any need to show off or to tell people all they know or all the things they've got. They generally are great listeners, and they generally are excellent communicators. It doesn't mean that they're inspirational. It just means that they're actually damn good at communicating within the company right. and outside the company. Um, one of the—I don't know if I've got time—but 
One of the things, I find communication a perennial problem in, in every company I'm in, uh, and it's certainly in mine as well, and it's something that you know we have to revisit every year. But I do find that in some companies, people do have <laughs> an ability just to, to not communicate very well. And sometimes in big organizations, I find that people suffer from you know, using jargonese, like speaking in jargon, or right. perhaps speaking in acronyms, what I call acrimonious acronyms, so they'll just say the ABC on DEF of the GHI. And when I go in as an outsider, I think, what the hell are you talking about? And then sometimes when I ask people in those management teams, you know, they don't even know either what they're talking about. They might use set management phrases or some acronyms, and they do it because the boss does it as well. And they don't actually sometimes know themselves. They just know it because everybody else has used that word. Uh, and I find that really very, very sad. If that happens, I have a little um, thing I do with the CEOs usually um, to, to explain to them what's happening. I'll just say to them just a little, a little uh, nonsense thing, and they don't know how to take it. I usually say, uh, one can regard with floxynoxin hilopilification those with a propensity to favour anti-disestablishmentarianism, unless, of course, one is hippopotamonstrosoquipedaliophobic. Now, that doesn't make sense, uh, and you with your sensible ears... Uh, can hear the ridiculousness of what I'm saying. It actually means something. It means that you can estimate as insignificant those who are against the separation of church and state unless you are afraid of using long words. But the reason I say this to them is to get them to realise sometimes how ridiculous they sound, not only to right. one another, but to the staff. And quite often staff are, are frightened to ask, to say that they don't understand something for fear of looking ridiculous for fear of looking simple. And it's, it's something in all organisations that, I mean, you could go on with communication forever and ever and ever, but it's something that really gets to me, especially, I mean, I've worked with a lot of big organisations, and if people aren't being understood, then, you know, you're lost before you start, you know? Right. Um, so, so then moving on to, to healing the business. So uh, you, you touched on self-sabotage and and listening to other people. The other ones in, in that group are fighting fires instead of fire prevention. Status quo is Latin for not evolving. Don't settle. That's actually one of my favorite ones. And then also waiting for the right time to change. So inaction, uh, you know, as opposed to action. So once once you have spotted those symptoms and, and to figure out what the hidden business illnesses are. How do you step forward and start the healing process? I think the healing is really, really important. Um, you know, um, there are various ways to do it. It obviously depends on exactly what you've found in terms of the barriers and what you've found in terms of the symptoms. But basically, once you find those things, you take action, you, you know, identify them, and then you identify strategies to move forward, and then you implement those strategies in order to move forward. And that's what I really call healing the business. For example, you know, relaunch type strategies. Even at times, I mean, I would use the word relaunch when I'm not even really relaunching. It just re-energizes and revitalizes people. Um, working in teams is also something that's really important. Um, and team results without team pitfalls is one of the things I talk about as well because 
um, I think it's really important. You'll get a lot more synergy out of people working together as a team than you will out of the sum of the individuals working together. But there, are, there can be pitfalls as well, and uh, I've seen it go to the extreme where the teams are almost running the organisation and it gets a bit out of hand. So it's important that people understand how strong and how great teams can be for businesses. One of the things I've also find important is, is using and feedback. It's really important that we have good feedback and a believable feedback, not nonsense feedback. There was an organization I was working with a while ago and it had a terrible feedback situation. In fact, I found that, that they would have been better with no feedback system, no system of feedback than the one they had. The one they had was being misused. Generally, I found the supervisors in that organization fell into three categories. There, were, there was a group of supervisors that thought giving feedback, giving meaningful feedback was just a joke. And it was a time, it was a time that was dedicated to doing so. And they just joked about it. And they spent the time that should be done in feedback just using, you know, gossiping. Or in some cases, actually just going out to the local bar for a drink with people. It was terrible. The second lot of supervisors, they were quite interesting. And a group that um, I think I find in most organisations... These supervisors were really quite good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses of the people who reported to them. And they were particularly good at telling their peers about them. And they were particularly good at giving positive feedback. But this group was not any good at giving feedback, and a, ne a negative feedback or feedback where people needed to learn and change their ways. And basically, the second group was the group that I could do the most work with because they were willing to learn. They right. understood that people would benefit from feedback. They just found it very difficult to give negative feedback. They could give the positive, but they found it difficult to give the negative and then to work on the skills required to get those people up to scratch. The third group is a group that I do find in a number of organizations. And they're the group that I would call the little Hitlers of the organization. They only ever gave negative feedback. The feedback they gave was, you know, I am great and you are awful. You do this badly all the time. I mean, almost laughable. You know, you almost want to, you know, pretend you're Hitler when you, you comic with these people. But some people did see feedback as just a negative thing, not a positive thing as well. Now, if you only give feedback in negative situations, then people aren't going to tell you their weaknesses, are you? Because they're only yeah. going to tell you what they've done well. They're never going to say, oh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not too good at this and I would like some training in this area because I know I have weaknesses there. Or, oh, it was me that did that yesterday. I'm sorry, we have a mistake with this customer. We've just lost this because of what I did. Now, you need an organization where there's openness and people can give negative and positive feedback. Right. So I think it's important in organizations to get that right, and so many organizations get it wrong. And as I say, in some organizations, particularly big ones, I've seen it so badly wrong that they'd be better with nothing than what they've got because it's actually doing them damage. Right. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So what what else um, are companies taking a look at during that healing process? I know um, you talk a little bit about the, the whole issue of win-win. Are you talking about uh, the customer winning a, as well as the company, or is there something else behind that? 
Well, I'm talking about win-win all round for profit. I'm talking about hopefully everybody winning, because if you've got a win-win situation, then everybody's winning. And so many people I've heard talk about win-win, and when I ask them in more detail about it, basically what they're describing is I win. I win. (laughs) I hear it so often. It it blows me away. They'll talk, they'll use the phrase win-win, but they basically mean I win. Now, if you get a simply I win situation, not a win-win situation, that might be all right for now, but it's not necessarily setting yourself up well for the future. What a good win-win situation does is set you up for the future because people want to be with you because they know that you're working fairly and they know that they'll win when they're with you. And that goes from the suppliers you deal with, the people that you buy your goods from, the people that work with you within your company, and the people that distribute your goods for you. I mean, I would say at every level it's important to, do, to utilize a win-win approach. If you utilize that all the time, don't try and screw people. I don't think it works. It might work for that one deal, but if you go back to them in two years' time and you need a favor, if you've screwed them once, they're not going to come back and work with you again. So, right. my philosophy. Right. No, that is so so true, and and I'm uh, in the midst. You know, win win all the time. Work for it all the time. There are things that are easy for you to give, and there are things that are easy for them to give. And what you have to do when you're going into any negotiation with anyone, really, is to sit down and write down your game plan, and to look at what you want to achieve from it, and what you want to give, and what you want to get. But then also take that next step that so many people don't take, is to think about it from their perspective. What do they want out of it? What will be good for them to get? And what will cost you nothing? Sometimes with employees, it's a job title. Now that costs you nothing. But it can make an employee change their attitude and work harder and change everything just by letting them have a title that they think mean, is meaningful to them and they can tell their family they've now got this job title. It can be something as simple as that. Or it can be gaining free internet access or it can be things that you don't think about unless you take the time to sit down and think about whether it's a supplier, whether it's your employees, whether it's your distributors or anyone you're in contact with. What can they give that costs them nothing and what can I give them that costs me nothing? And this is over and above your normal negotiation process where you've worked out what you're going to give and take. It's so important. And if people win with you, they'll come back to you time and time again. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, what I find is that people don't often think about the the ecosystem that they that they live in. And um, I, I've been working on a book, uh, again, talking about the travel industry as a whole. And the the intertwining of the supplier community and the distributors and the consumers and and uh, like many industries our industry is looking at disintermediation of that middleman mm-hmm. and but not realizing as you said you know if they need a favor a couple of years from now to you know fill 400 new airplanes that they've just bought um, you know, they may find that they need to come back to the very player that they decided that they could live without. So I, I think, you know, you do have to look sometimes at 
at the bigger picture uh, of of the entire ecosystem of of your business. So I'm glad to hear that you you approach that. So let's move on to uh, part four of the book and and talking about success. Yeah, well, in part four, I actually I actually take the liberty of really talking about the lessons we learned from the Medici's. I mean, I just think they were such an amazing family. I mean, they ruled for for over 300 years, most of Europe. Um, they, they, they were patrons of people like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and, and they really set up people like Galileo. They, they invented loan interest. They invented the double-entry bookkeeping system. They actually were probably the inventors of what we now know as the Italian language. I mean, we can learn so much from a family like that about creative thinking, about networking, uh, and uh, about systems integration. That I do take, uh, you know, a few pages in the book to actually talk about the lessons we can learn from them. I mean, they they had networking. They had their friends of friends system. I won't try and say it in Italian because my I mean, Italian, Scottish, Australian, American is awful. But um, they had their system, which they called the Friends of Friends. I mean, they they were they understood the benefits of networking. You know, we like to do business with those people that we know, we like, and we trust. And and I don't know how often I have to tell this to people. Networking is not a new thing. It's not something that's only been invented in the few, last few years. Perhaps it is one of the modern buzzwords. But networking has been around for centuries. And it's one of the most valuable things you can do in business is to network. Now, whether you use social networking, whether you use IT networking, whether you go to dinners, whether you're in a rotary club, whether you're in a business club, whether you're doing something like we're doing just now, it doesn't matter. But once you've made contact with people, they are much more likely, much more likely to do business with you if they like you, know you, and trust you. Or even if you are someone that's recommended by a friend. You know, I mean, each of us knows about 200 people. Now, it's not those 200 people that are important. It's the 200 people that those 200 people know. Because... That's 40,000 people before you start. And then if you did it, took it just one step forward, it's, it's exponential. I mean, I sound like I'm, a, <laughs> I'm trying to sell Amway or something. I'm not. But I mean, it's, it's just amazing, the power of networking. And that's one of the things I really just feel very, very strongly about, that it's not something new. It's been around for years. And it really is, you know, I'm not a pyramid seller or anything, but it's it's so fundamentally important, you know, to do to do that networking because it can help you beyond belief. Well, great. And so, take us into part five of the book and uh, and what you focus on there. Yeah, on, on part five, basically what what I'm trying to sort of say, and in many different ways in part five, is to you know, you read the book. Okay, we've read the book. Now, most people, believe it or not, statistically, only ever read 18 pages of any business or self-help book they buy. It's a statistical fact. Uh, 18 pages. Sometimes you get the first chapter, uh, and sometimes you get the last chapter, or sometimes you get the first few and little bits in between. So in my book, right. I've tried to put little little bits in italics after every chapter, so if people don't want to read it all, they can read those bits. 
Um, and it's really important that you don't just then read the book and put it down. What I would like people to do is actually to try and work through the various concepts in the book to to identify the roadblock, you know, identify the roadblocks within their own company, and then deal with them. Really deal with them, and that's hard. Be prepared to work hard and to work smart. You know, it's really important in business. Um, I meet so many people, to be quite frank with you, that start off in small business, and they have the pretty little netbooks, and they have the lovely office equipment, and they've ordered the stationery, and they've put things in, you know, that looks great. And I say, well, how many cold calls do you make a day? How many customers are on your books? How are you keeping customers? How, what's your target every week for new customers? And they look at me and, hmm. I said, it's hard work. Business is hard work. So be prepared to work hard. Be prepared to be on that telephone. Be prepared to out there calling people. Identify roadblocks. Deal with them. Look for opportunities all the time and run with them. When you find an opportunity, run with it. They won't all work out. Of course they won't. But don't be disillusioned at the ones that don't. Keep going. Surround yourself with people that believe in you and have people working with you that believe in what you're doing too. Treat staff fairly. And as I've said a number of times, that sometimes that doesn't mean being mamby-pamby. It doesn't mean being their friend. It means being fair to all staff. It means, means being a boss that people will look up to because they know you're fair. They know you're honest. You, they know that you're treating them well. Plan for the future both strategically and operationally. Plan for the future. Set goals. Have your goals. Have it written down. Know on an annual basis what you're doing, on a six-monthly and on a monthly, on a weekly, and also on a daily. Have a daily task list. That daily task list, by the way, is not one written by your PA because your PA will give you a task list based on timelines. Your task list is based on what's most important, which isn't always Priority. a timeline. Exactly. And then remember why you started your business, your initial enthusiasm every day, why you started your business or why you started working for this company. What is it that makes you, made you enthusiastic? Try and remind that. Relaunch yourself every day. Embrace change. Look at change. Embrace it. Work with it. Not change for the sake of change, but change for the sake of making sure you're still a front runner. And maintain, first of all, and lastly, and throughout all of this, maintain your sense of humor because you damn well need it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I love how you, you end uh, part five is decide now, act now, start now, change now, and succeed now. So, yeah. Ainsley, you have given us so much practical information. Uh, I know your book is available on Amazon, which means that we have it uh available for sale on our Executive Girlfriends Group website, which is powered by Amazon. How can the listeners to this call get in touch with you if they would like to speak with you? Yes, they can get through my website, www.ainsleywaldron.com or www.accelerateyourcompany.com. Either of those two, you'll get my emails and be able to contact me there. Terrific. No matter where I'm in, I am in the world, I can answer my emails. <laughs> it's a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> well, terrific. And and uh, again, for our listeners, uh, it's A I N S L I E, Ainsley Waldron, W A L D R O N. And for our Executive Girlfriends group members, you will have access to Ainsley's contact information on the Executive Girlfriends group 
private information platform. And Ainsley, I just am so glad you were able to join us today. Enjoy your uh, your tundra weather in Canada. Actually, it's so funny living in Florida. We're normally the hottest in the country, but I think we have had uh, just a complete reprieve from this. Every time I look at the maps on the on the news, uh, everything else in the U.S. is red, and and we're actually whatever whatever the lighter colors are. Yeah, well, thank you, Chiki. It's been great to talk today. Well, terrific. And Ainsley, thank you so much again. Ainsley's book is The Ultimate Secret for Business. And with okay. that, we will turn off the recording of the call because what's uh, said on the rest of the egg call stays on the egg call. <laughs>